Welcome to Saints and Sisters, a conversational podcast between sisters about faith, moral compass, and the role that God plays in our lives. Follow along as we explore these themes through discussions of books and literature, scripture, and current events as guideposts. Over the last week, we watched The Our Father, a short course with Dr. Ben Akers, and took the time to recite The Our Father each day. This was a six-part series breaking down The Our Father, beginning with talking about New Testament references to how Jesus not only asked his disciples to pray, but actively modeled and gave the words in the form of the Lord's Prayer. Now, three plus hours talking about a single prayer seemed a little intense at first, but once I started watching the sessions, I really appreciated understanding better some of the historical and cultural context and also the fact that translations from Greek to Latin and then to English again will always leave room for misunderstanding when we just rotely repeat something over the course of our lives. If you're interested in watching this short course, you can access it at formed.com. Formed is a unique parish-based evangelization program created by the Augustine Institute. Check with your parish to see if they have established an account with them, and you can access the extensive library for free. Okay, so we'll go ahead and get started. And it's actually formed.org, just like people can find it. One of the things that I loved is in his first session and then kind of sprinkled throughout the other sessions, he gave just some general context. And one of the things that I loved was he talked about Jesus teaching us how to pray with our Father, but also just talking about how he um, was really a strong model and master of prayer, how he, both through his words and then teaching the words of our Father, but also just that he was constantly modeling prayer. And it was talking about how throughout his ministry, prayer was a part of the big moments, the small moments, um, and his public and private life, and how he revealed that all, or he showed those glimpses into his life to his disciples. So I loved that he started with that before even going into the specific Our Father prayer. Um, I also loved, Sarah already mentioned this a little bit in the intro, but I loved how it was so rich with biblical ties of both Old Testament and New Testament to show how it all weaves together. And so he really, and so one of the reasons why he was able to do the three hours talking about Our Father was because he was going beyond just the verses that were listed in that section of the Bible, like that explicitly are the Our Father, but then connecting back to all different areas to show why there, those verses were significant. So I really appreciated that. And then um, the final thing that um, that I really liked as far as just the setup, and this came in at session four, but he kind of talked again about how Our Father starts with just how we address God, but then goes into the seven petitions. And this was with Matthew's version. Um, and so I really liked how he talked about it, how that's the structure, but that it's also like the petitions are in order of how we should pray them, um, that it was intentional, not just any given order. And so talking about how the, our father can really help us to properly orient our lives or like what our folks should be first as we think about it. So I really loved that part of session four as just a general setup of the intentionality behind the prayer. I think it's, for me, it's another thing that I went into this course um, prepared to be bored, frankly. I was like, how can you listen to, you know, when I opened it up and I was like, holy cow, there's six and each one's a half an hour. Like Sarah was saying, three and a half hours on the Our Father. Like, okay, it's one of those prayers that we've said our whole lives. You know, it's one of those that you just say kind of on autopilot, but I liked the way it was framed, especially in the in the first. So it's Dr. Ben Akers, how he framed it at first, um, you know, outlining 
Romans 8, 26, where, you know, Paul's saying, we, we know we don't know how to pray, but we also know we need to teach us how to pray. And the idea that you have to <clears throat> ask, seek, and knock, um, whatever you ask in prayer. And so I think that for me, that kind of hooked me in, <coughs> excuse me, that hooked me in because that's sort of where I am. Like prayer is one of those ideas that I get like on a, on a big scale. I know that it's something I need to do, but I have a really hard time being still and listening and just taking, you know, it's the same reason I've always struggled like with meditation, yoga, anything that involves slowing down and listening is really difficult for me. It's been a challenge my whole adult life. Um, probably because I'm always feel the need to be doing something Yet, I also found that I I found myself asking as I was watching this, um, you know, I can lose myself for multiple minutes (laughs) or hours on like looking at Instagram feeds or stories or, you know, like I can be mindless, but I have a really hard time being mindful. And I think that the busier we are, sometimes I'm always craving that, you know, moment where I don't have to think but I haven't built in these moments where I can just stop and listen. It's interesting to think about that within the context of our cultural in general, because, um, and these aren't religious books, but I just started reading, now I'm trying to think of what it's called, Brainwash. Um, it's by the same doctor, but it's the doctor and his son, the same doctor who wrote Grain Brain. So he's, the section that I've read so far is just talking about the context of technology and that really links to other books that I've read, like um, Cal New- Dr. Cal Newport, um, but like Professor Doctor, not Dr. Doctor, like the brainwash guy. But he also talks about just the context of how technology is so addictive and it's set up that way So because that's how they generate their money. So they don't necessarily set up the technology for what's good for us. They set it up for what's good for their businesses and just how that's changing our minds and our brains. And so it's interesting to think about that. Um, like mindful and mindless and just how our culture, but then I think it also links into just in general thinking about sense of worth within our culture and the pressures to like do, 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 and like constantly having to do a lot in order to have that sense of worth. And so I think that it's kind of those two things coming together um, that make it hard to slow down and focus and pray. Um, So yeah, I love Dr. Cal Newport's books, Deep Work and uh, Digital Minimalism. Um, that I've been thinking about those a lot lately. I think sometimes it's about needing to build stamina for prayer. So like even with young kids, like when starting with independent reading at school, they talk about needing to build stamina. So like if you want to read for a half hour a day in the classroom, um, often starting smaller and then building up so that kids can build that stamina. And I think as adults, we have to recognize the context of our culture and whether or not it is easy for us to slow down and to be still and to enter into prayer. And if not, then it's kind of about recognizing why and trying to create the space in our minds and uh, lives and then to kind of build that in. But I think it's a process that takes time rather than being able to automatically do it and being able to recognize that there's like science behind why it's hard and cultural, like things entrenched in our culture. I think that's helpful. So I was just realizing that like maybe not everybody knows exactly what the Our Father is, if they're listening. The Our Father is basically like the original prayer of the Christian church. And 
it's a little bit different in the Catholic Church than it is in Protestant churches, because we have the doxology, and we also have the part where the priest says, between the doxology and deliver us, Lord. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Because only most noticeable at funerals, when, like, at funerals, there's, like, people join together, and often people from other denominations continue praying, and then it's, like, the priest's turn, but then the line that they would have continued on saying comes part of it comes after because they would have okay so it's our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and then the priest says that this one's written differently so i'm just gonna say how i remember father hank always saying it (laughs) uh deliver us lord from every evil and grant us peace in our day in your mercy, keep us free from sin and protect us from all anxiety, which I, I loved the way they said that because I'm anxiety queen. <laughs> As we wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the rest of the church together again says, for the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And I think, I don't know if the wording has changed on that one, Amanda. I don't remember. I mean, it sounds, Not I don't really. know. Okay. As you just read it, like it was resonating, but I don't know if it's just recalling from childhood or if it really is what it still is. I think it's still. Yeah. Is. Cause that one was like super wordy and weird. And so I just said it hard cause I just always remember. I love that middle part. And I still remember at the point when people started talking along with the priest as he would do that part, like father Hank would let them like join in with him. And then you go to other churches and it's like, if you <laughs> no, say a word, no. that's not your space. <laughs> Well, when I was in high school, um, there was actually correction in our parents saying that we could no longer do that. <laughs> it was probably after what? <laughs> it was probably after a visit with a bishop or something when they're like, "Oh no, no, <laughs> that's not the way this goes." Seems like there's been a lot of there's been some crackdown lately. Like, okay, no more multiple godmothers. No more speaking when you're not spoken to. <laughs> well, I think some we're gonna do this right. They're like, if y'all aren't careful, they're going to crash the patriarchy right down. (laughs) (laughs) I think think some of it was back to, if you think about alteration and just all of the significance and purpose and intentionality behind why things are the way they are in the mass, and that there's certain roles of different people within the church community, then I think that would be part of it as, like the liturgy is intentionally set up for specific reasons, and that there's intentionality between whether it's something the priest is saying versus something the congregation is saying, that I think that's part of it. And especially like, and it probably varies bishop to bishop as far as um, like how closely they hold the liturgy as, I don't know, like some just really study sacred liturgy and have very strong convictions. And so I think that that's why there were shifts over time, different priests, different bishops. Okay, so he started off with session one, which was like an introduction. It wasn't even necessarily it what the rest of the sessions broke down the way that the um, petitions are and like what they what the translations have meant through time. But I liked that they they had kind of like a pre-session talking about what what Jesus wanted and asking us to pray. Yeah, and on the part that Sherry mentioned, the ask, seek, knock. Doctor Akers talked about how. He actually, he doesn't just ask us to, he commands us to pray. So it's in like the command form, ask, seek, knock. Yeah. And just like commanding because he knows it's good for us or that we need it. And I I just was thinking more about like the, like the similarities between praying and meditation, like just having quiet, like learn, like learning how to quiet your mind. 
like Sherry was saying how it's really easy to do things that are mindless and it's a lot harder to get in the habit of doing things that are mindful. They have to be present for and like, <clears throat> it just seems like there's always such a barrage of information that it's almost easier to just keep on bombarding yourself by like scrolling in social media or doing something else. And it's a lot or, harder to just find that quiet time. Which is also, I think at the core of building that relationship, if you're seeking to build a relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit, with whatever, whomever you're trying to build that relationship to, it's, I think central to it is, is finding that alone space. Um, and he talked about that in session one too, just, um, was it in Matthew? Um, when you pray, you should not, and yes, I'm reading from my Bible app because I don't have this memorized, <laughs> but when you, when you pray, so Matthew six, verse five, when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites who love standing in the synagogues and at the corners of the streets. So there may be seen by men. Amen. I say to you, they've received their reward, but you, when you pray, enter into your room and having shut the door, pray to your father in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. And you don't have to choose many words. So, I mean, it's kind of like if, if something's not part of your Instagram story, has it really happened? I think there's also so many things I find myself and part of it's fun. I mean, it's, you know, some of these things that make us feel connected and it's fun to share everything. And, but there are certain things that you know, going into your room, shutting the door, or I remember Grandma Ivy every night kneeling at her bed and just that the quiet moment of prayer every morning, every night. And I can't remember the last time I, before this week, so every day this last week, saying the Our Father quietly in my room, or like I'd forget and I'd be like getting ready to get in the shower. So I'd be like, crap. <laughs> so I, while the shower's getting warmed up, <laughs> I don't know if that's legit or not, but. Of course it is. Whenever you like, that's the thing. I feel like part of this is that what you and I are trying to do is figure out like how to like how this will or if it will fit into our lives. And I feel like sometimes if we feel like, well, I didn't say it the first thing in the morning, so I guess it doesn't count anymore. Like it counts whenever you do it. Like it's your life. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a. There's not a scorecard, which I. I guess it's part of what I feel like so much of this is like, I feel like so much of it is, I don't know, just in, when I was editing the whole um, episode that we did on sexuality or abortion really is all we talked about. Um, like I realized like maybe at some point I will come to the, to the fact that like, okay, I want to be Catholic and this is how I'm going to be Catholic. And I might not be the same kind of Catholic. Well, I won't be the same kind of Catholic Amanda is, but that doesn't mean that I can't say that I'm Catholic. You know what I mean? At some point, there's going to have to be a point where Amanda will always be more adherent to all tenets of Catholicism. I'm not trying to shape myself necessarily to fit with everything that it's going to say, because there are just certain parts of my own value system that aren't going to line up. But I feel like the parts that are important to me might. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, is it even possible for a human to 100% follow a divine order because the very fact that we are human? Can you tell I've been praying for a week? So I'm getting super deep. <laughs> <laughs> and I see Mandy like, yes, in fact. I was like, no. yes, it's possible because I do. <laughs> no, that, stop. The whole, 
the whole point is like as long as we're on earth we're striving and working towards perfection but we won't um reach that perfection until we're in heaven and then so some of that sanctification happens while we're on earth so later in the session when he talks about trials and how they can be purifying um that's part of it like through the purification process on earth but then there's also purgatory for any remaining purification that needs to happen so until we're in heaven then no one is 100 percent perfect so like yeah. then when we get to heaven and everyone's pro-choice it'll all work out <laughs> <laughs> no because i think the other part of it and i don't want this to go off the rails so I won't go into too much, but I feel like there's some things that's not, I haven't been praying hard enough or I'm seeking. There's some things that like, I don't have a desire to change, but I still want to be a part of the faith. Yeah. Well, St. Augustine had a prayer where he said something like, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. So, so sometimes it is like, (laughs) did you say Lord, make me chaste, but not yet? Yeah, that was what Saint Augustine said at one point in his life. Was his prayer? Like just I mean, one more like, cake. The whole, like, all of it is thinking about like our desires and what we want to change, what we don't want to change. There's different things that over time will shift, and there are some things that I know that you two don't think will ever shift. But in general, like the whole growth and holiness. But I process. really don't like I see this is what's driving me crazy. You keep saying like, I know you don't think it will, but I really feel like I'm like I'm not like trying to give up crack cocaine. I'm not like <laughs> I'm not like it's not something that I feel bad about. It's not uh, something that I'm trying to say like, oh my gosh, if only I didn't feel like people had a choice. It's like I'm saying, why can't these two things coexist? Because I feel right. like there's so much more nuance than what the Catholic Church is allowing for. So, yeah, back so to the Our might, Father. <laughs> so you might always think that, but there's, like, you never know where your personal, like, you never know how things will shift over time. So sometimes, I know, like, you might be pro-choice next month. You never know. <laughs> might be like mom. She was, like, staunch, right to lifer, and now she's pro-choice. So... In session one, I, I I was thinking about it the other day and I was like, oh, it's it's like that same quote that both of us used from the book, the how do I do a pray? Like he knew that prayer wasn't going to be something that was just instinctual and that he would have to teach his disciples. And he wasn't sanctimonious about it or impatient. He like took the time in, t- in like several different places to show them how by modeling it and by like giving them the actual words of what to pray. I w- okay. So as I was listening to session one and this one, Amanda, your head might explode. Um, <laughs> as I was listening to session one. So I have been listening to um, a podcast and the one season was on Waco. I think it's American. Yeah. American scandal by Wondery. I can't wait to see how Waco relates to what we're talking about. I think you already know. So it, and I had also watched the Waco miniseries on HBO a couple years ago, but now I'm rewatching it because it's on available on Netflix now with Tim Riggins. And maybe it's because Taylor Kitsch is David Koresh and Texas Forever. But I was listening to it talking about him because there was a lot of ways that he was mischaracterized and he was persecuted by the government. Blah blah. Like 
what makes people like David Koresh different than Jesus? I'm so serious. <laughs> like, is it just because hundreds of years have passed? I'm being serious. I'm asking a real question. He oh, was well, David Koresh wasn't raising people mean, from the dead. And like David Koresh couldn't work. Like, we don't know that Jesus was either. Like he thinks he was performing his own miracles. So one Remember time, that like, time when, when Sarah compared David Crush to Jesus? <laughs> and Mandy's head exploded. No, so one thing that they do talk about though is Christianity. So like in the early early church, um, they thought that it would just fade away. And they talk about one of the reasons why why is Jesus still a big part of culture? Why why didn't that just fade away? And they talk about because he really was who he said he was. And people were willing to die. So, like, all of the apostles except for John were martyred. And a lot of people over time have been martyred because they actually saw his life, death, resurrection. They And they also had the Holy Spirit then descend. But people would not have been willing well, to but die. Nobody's, like, but how much of the Bible is allegory? Because, like, nobody saw him resurrect. Like, they didn't see him again. They saw a rock that was moved. Right, but then they did see and him, body again. Gone. him again. And then he, they saw him. Like, they knew that he was dead, that he was in the tomb, but then they also saw him multiple times after he resurrected. Where? So, in the Gospels, it has some, and then Acts is the book that comes after the Gospels, and at the very beginning of Acts, he's still there. And then it's with the Ascension. Um, so, there's, like, he appeared to the apostles in the upper room, and then multiple times. But what so does that mean? Appeared to because, like, in the LDS faith, like faith, like they, he saw the angel Moroni, and revealed to him these golden tablets, and then he couldn't find the tablets. Like, how much of this stuff is just like, I don't know. I guess that's I guess that's my real question. Like, how? Like, is it just the passage of time that makes it all seem a little bit less crazy? Then, like, when you talk about somebody like David Koresh, people are like, well, he's a maniac. But then it's like, well, how many of the things that he was doing were exactly what they're talking about in the New Testament? Like, yeah, he was... So, yeah. so, do you know what I'm well, asking? Even, right. So, even... So, like, St. Thomas the Apostle wasn't there the first time that he appeared to the Apostles. And he didn't believe when they said, like, we, we have seen Jesus. And he said, unless I put my hands in his side and touch the nail marks. And so then another time Jesus did come... And he said, and Jesus offered him. So like he didn't rebuke him for not believing, but he offered himself for St. Thomas to touch his sides. And St. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And that's where at mass, um, we like a lot of people say, my Lord and my God at the time of transubstantiation. Um, but so there were multiple. So like he appeared to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. He appeared like to the apostles multiple times. Um, he appeared on the road to Emmaus. There were people walking and often they didn't recognize that it was him until he would say a certain thing. Like Mary Magdalene recognized him when he said her name. The other people on the road to Emmaus recognized him when he broke the bread. Like he was revealing the scriptures to him. And then they got to a location. He broke the bread, which was then connecting back to Last Supper. They recognized him. Um, he also appeared to the apostles on the seashore because they had gone out fishing again. Cause it was kind of like 
nothing's happening. We don't see like how this is all playing out. We're going back to our old life of fishing. And then Jesus appeared to them there. And that was when, is that like so when Peter like, was in the boat and he appeared to him and let him walk on water. That was a long time ago. The um, walking on water was before, but that was the time where Peter like jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. Cause John recognizes it's the Lord. And then St. John recognizes that it was Jesus. So then they go to the shore and Peter talks to him. And it's like that time it echoes Jesus talking to Peter after Peter denied Jesus three times during the time of the crucifixion or leading up to it. Then Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me? Three times to kind of like echo that. So if you dig into the ends of the Gospels, I don't remember if every single Gospel talks about Jesus. Like the ones that I was just saying, I don't remember which ones of the Gospels they're in. I know in the Gospel of John has Mary Magdalene. But like that's where you can kind of see some of that. But that's one of the key things that they talk about why the church has still existed. Because there were people there who were witnesses who saw and knew that Jesus was who he said he was. But there's, I was thinking one idea that we could do for like our next session or a future session was like, if I reflected on why I believe different reasons why, and we've kind of discussed some of those and you two, if you wanted to, could say like, I struggle to believe because we could have that, or I want to believe because, but I struggle to believe because. So like, there are things why you think that there are, I believe statements, but that might be something interesting to do. Cause I think your questions about thinking about David Crush and how is that different, that a lot of that links to how we come to believe or how we struggle with believing over time, that that might be an interesting episode topic. It goes back to my questions about like, is everyone just pretending? Because in listening to it, addressing to God in the first petition, there was that the third century writing by St. Cyprian on the Lord's Prayer, talking about addressing God the Father and how like in the Old Testament, he's never actually talked about as the father, but then it says, well, but he created Adam and Eve in his image. And so if something's in your image, that means you're the parent or whatever. I mean, I think of Adam and Eve, like those kinds of stories, like I think of all that as allegory. And so I I feel like big chunks of the Bible are allegory. And I know that there's a lot of people who don't think that. And so I feel like that just kind of gets to like my, my big questions. Like, can I think of this as like a really nice story that is like a guidepost and still be part of this? That's where because in, in section, is it session six when he was talking about the evil? That's the last one, right? Evil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have something to say when we get to that point, but. So this kind of links back to father Mike's video talking about authority with the church. And he talked about how an infallible book without an infallible interpreter is like a useless book or something like that. So we're lucky as a church to have sacred scripture and sacred tradition to help us interpret and to know like there's a lot of scripture scholars who are able to say this part of the Bible is an allegory, this part of the Bible is to be able to sift through some of that. So there's different areas where... So like what, like, so do they say that like Noah's Ark is an allegory? Like, do they admit that that is like a physics improbability? I think or is Noah's Ark not one of the allegories? Well, I think I'm not like an expert on all of these, so I would need to look up some. But I thought that I was reading something recently that talked about how it's not necessarily conclusive. That's where I think that like looking into what actual scripture scholars from church tradition say over time is helpful to put things in the Bible in context of how it all fits together. So like with Jesus, the New Testament, he, of course, spoke in parables a lot. 
But then like his actual actions of what he was doing, then that was literal. Like the way that he was saving people or interacting. Um, yeah. So I mean, a lot of things that he said were veiled. And then the disciples and apostles were able to understand over time retrospectively once they understood like life, death and resurrection. Whereas like when he alluded to what was going to happen, they didn't get it yet. But Jesus would often clarify for them as well. So that's where I think scripture scholars, there's a lot of depths to scripture that I'm not an expert on. Okay. So I think like for the whole session too, it was nice just to hear their like information about Hallow Be They Name. I don't think there's any argument between us that like, obviously, if you are a practicing Christian who takes it seriously, then like the name of God is sacred to you. It's, it's like definitely something that I take in vain a lot. And, um, but I'm not like, that's not one that I have questions about because I understand why people would hold that sacred. Did you guys have thoughts on session three? Well, one the thing about session two, come be done. one thing that I liked about session two was with the very first line of the All Our Father, how he talked about how it focuses on who, but also where, who are in heaven and that that was pointing towards how heaven is our home. And so the whole prayer is the prayer of a pilgrim and what we need along the way as we're journeying towards heaven. So I liked that part. Yeah. Shift into session three. So we talked about how hallowed be thy name and thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How those three were the statements that begin with thy and are really focusing on our proper orientation towards God. Um, so this session three talked about those, the second and third of those three, thy statements. So what were people's thoughts on those, on session three? I like session three because um, for me, it was one of those takeaways of surrendering yourself to God's will, understanding, being patient. I liked the way he framed the no, go, slow, or grow. So like when you're asking and you're praying, sometimes the answer is going to be no. Like to, I can't remember the examples he was giving, but you know, sometimes you pray and the answer is no, because it's not the right time or there's go like, yes, go forth, do it or slow down. You know, it's not the right time or that you need to grow still before you can need to continue to grow in your faith. And I just thought that was a good way of framing it too, because, you know, just because you're, you pray for something doesn't mean it's going to happen, which kind of relates. We've talked about this before, how people are like, well, God just wanted me to do it. You know, well, hopefully it was like in conversation with God <laughs> and he made it so, cause it was the right time or, you know, you did what you were supposed to do because I think a lot of times people miss the slow and grow part of it. So especially when they pronounce to the world, like what happened because of God's will, they kind of skip over the part where maybe they've been seeking it for a while or working on something. It's kind of that hashtag blessed culture, part of the culture that we're into. <laughs> God has just blessed us with so much. I've also heard it referred to as yes, no, or not yet. And so I also oh. like his wording of instead of the not yet, the slow and grow, I liked that just thinking about how like the foundation isn't laid yet it's not ready for that and so needing to continue working to be prepared to receive what god will eventually give or a scenario that eventually will be come into your life um, but just not yet so i liked that part of like the need to surrender to god's will and how recognizing our timelines are not god's timelines all the time this was actually the part that i was supposed to talk about david koresh <laughs> Because I had said um, that the two most discussed topics by Jesus were his father and the kingdom. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And that was what made me think 
what oh, separates okay. a figure like Jesus from somebody like David Koresh. <laughs> good speech. Don't get on that one. Good speech. Good speech. So I liked how there were like the different interpretations of if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Because whether or not the kingdom itself is Jesus or the kingdom of God is something that lives inside of us and in our hearts, which that is probably the one that I, I could be down with. And, and like what is most prevalent in your heart, the goodness of God or sin? And that there, whether or not like is the kingdom here or is it something in the next life? And it was another one of those both ands. So it makes us be better here so that we can able to go there, right? Well, talking about how people who are going to blow up federal buildings. What? And not follow people who are going to blow up federal buildings or have standoffs with the government. I didn't say Timothy McVeigh. I said David Koresh. <laughs> I know he's had a standoff with the government, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you read more about that, he's actually a fairly sympathetic character. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably more like with him, was it mental illness? <laughs> Well, so, but that's what I'm saying. Like, that is exactly what I'm saying. What makes it so that we're like able to just write off someone like David Koresh as being mentally ill and not like, there's no way he was actually who he said he was, but like Jesus was just the son of God. So I he was so nice. A long time ago. Sure. (laughs) Okay. So um, a long time ago, I kind of brought up a quote from C.S. Lewis and he talked about how, why couldn't Jesus have just been a good man? And they talked. C.S. Lewis's quote was, like, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was who he said he was, and kind of how people sift through that. I think that that's one of the ways that you can distinguish, and then, like, looking back to see the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. And, of course, not everyone believes, but people who do believe, believe that the evidence is there to show that he was who he showed, who he said he was. And so that's, like, at the time, it was so controversial because Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. And, um, but then he revealed like over time, there was the evidence that he was documented in the gospels. So I think that's what a difference between Jesus and David Kresh, because he, he wasn't able to do the types of things that Jesus was able to do. And David Kresh isn't going to be around for 2000 years. It's not like his followers for 2000 years, like the church. So a lot of it again is like the, well, I mean, his followers were, we're like a break off of Seventh Day Adventists, so they're like a lot of them probably still. I don't know. We're getting what it sustained for generations and generations. His followers. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me in two thousand years. <laughs> I just I feel like it's like a it's a legitimate thing to explore. I am not defending David Koresh by any means. I am just saying that it's interesting how we can villainize somebody like him, but Let's then make that clear. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I understand that he was not, there were a lot of wrong things happening there. And there were a lot of people who were victims who didn't want to be there anymore and felt they had to be there, basically hostages. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not defending David Koresh. I was kind of joking when I said, like, I like the Taylor Kitsch version of him because who doesn't? But <laughs> I just think that it's interesting that, although I guess if people, I, I'm also like conflating, I guess, the two things of like modern day Christians who are like embracing white supremacy and gross things and then saying that they're followers of Jesus when that's not what he stood for. If you read what he did. Yeah. I'm going to edit all that out. So anyhow. (laughs) (laughs) 
So to get back to, I feel like I most identified with the interpretation that the kingdom of God is something that's in our soul or in our heart. And what are we going to like when we examine ourselves, what is more prevalent? Is it like the goodness of God or the evil of sin? Hmm. Which is kind of subjective, I guess. <laughs> and then the thy will be done as the, the evangelization component, because you can't just like hope that his kingdom is realized. You actually have to share the will of the Lord. Part of the Catholic belief is that whether or not we cooperate, that God will be able to accomplish his plans. But it's just that we have free will of whether or not we cooperate or whether it will be through other means. Yeah. Someone chooses not cooperate, then there will be another way for the will. He was also talking about how you can pray for both material and spiritual needs, like your basic material needs, like making like that you want to be able to have food and housing and clothing, but that you also need to have spiritual food. In order right. To be doing so I think well. we're on the fourth petition now to give us a stare daily bread, right? Daily bread. Yeah. When I when he was talking about the manna from heaven, the milk and honey, have you guys read The Wonder by Emma Donahue? No. no. It's super fascinating. And it's all about this child that people were coming to visit from afar because she lived without eating for like going on 60 days or whatever. So it's, it's kind of like, it's like a mystery or like a thriller. Yeah, um, that'd be good. I liked her. So it's the she same. wrote The Room. Yeah, she wrote Room. Yeah. It was like dark and twisty. It wasn't <clears throat> a masterfully written mystery. The detective is a young English nurse who's been hired to come in as an outside observer to determine the validity of the claim of a rural Irish family that their 11-year-old daughter has taken no food for four months and yet is miraculously thriving. And it takes place not long after the end of the Great Potato Famine. So there's like intense feelings between the two cultures of the English and the Irish. And she is... Was this supposed to be something that was true or is it fiction? It's fiction, but it's like that's the time period. Mm Mm-hmm. But she was seen locally as being someone who was specially blessed by God. It's just interesting. It's like fanaticism set in Southern Ireland in like the 18, late Ooh. 1850s. Anyhow, it made me think of that when the, with the whole like the acknowledgement that you need physical needs to be met also as well as spiritual needs. Right. And that the translation of daily bread, Epiusius, super substantial, like that you need more than just physical Hello, Bueller. Anybody home? <laughs> yeah, that was the first time that, that was the first time that word was introduced into literature. In was it Greek that it was a new word? Yep. In the Gospels, and it was used both by Matthew and Luke. Okay. In the fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses. Um, I really appreciated how they were talking about how forgiveness is a key part of the mission because yep. if you if you don't participate in, if you don't participate in forgiveness and forgive others that you cannot receive mercy in your own life. And I, I think whether you believe in God or not, I feel like that's just a good practice period because like I am the grudge holding champion of the world. Like I could, like I have been working on this personally because I can remember every mean thing that someone had said to me and fixate. I also would like, ruminate and fixate on things that I have said or done to other people that might have been not right. And like, how do I fix this? And then like, by trying to fix it, it makes it worse. Part of that is like Catholic guilt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like how, I mean, I do appreciate how it's talking about how you have to participate in forgiveness and mercy. But I think like speaking of Catholic guilt, I think, I feel like there's so much of the church and the structure that is built on guilt and pressure. If you think about 
like stereotypical, like 50s nuns at Catholic schools. And so like, how do you reconcile those things? The forgive us our trespasses part, but then there's like, it's telling you like, it's talking about like love and mercy and forgiveness and like being kind. But then so much of like the actual like structure of the church is built on all these pressures to perfectly conform. I don't know. I felt I just session five for me was, again, it was one of those, I feel like through every session, it was a moment to pause and think about a prayer that I just sort of taken for granted and hadn't really thought about how it is the perfect prayer, because it really does tell you everything you need. You know, you could say that prayer with intention each day, and it gives us what we need. And for me, the the forgiveness and the trespassing and, you know, treating everyone the way you want to be treated or better than you want to be treated. I don't know. I guess I didn't, I feel like maybe it's part of what Mandy's been talking about, how, you know, how the church evolves and changes and how we approach the gospel, but the gospel hasn't changed. Like I don't feel that God is a punitive uh, guilt inducing God, but we've, have we made it that way? I don't know. Well, there's a phrase, the devil um, condemns, but the Holy Spirit convicts. And so that would be the difference of like, we should be convicted of like recognizing our sins and the need to be forgiven and the need to strive to change. But if it's like the focus on shame and guilt or like the shame side, that's coming from the devil because the got from God's role, it's always about trying to call us to grow whereas the devil will try to just like fixate on it. Or they talk about how like, you know, the devil will lure people to try like the temptations trying to sin. But then as soon as you do, it's like shame, shame, shame. So, but that's not God. And I guess another layer is, you know, some people can be like people within the church, kind of going back to the sense that nobody's perfect. And so when there's imperfect people, sometimes there are people who are judgmental or who will make people feel that sense of guilt as well, but that's not demonstrating God. That's demonstrating their own imperfection. And then the next petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I thought this was interesting where it was another issue of translation because it's saying, why would why would you think anyway that God is trying to lead you into temptation? Like he's trying to actually keep you from temptation. And so the actual translation is do not yield the temptation or enter into it. So I thought that was yeah. interesting. Because well, God Spanish, doesn't tempt people. In Spanish, it actually, actually like would translate to English as don't allow us to fall into temptation. Yeah, that's interesting. Which makes a little bit more sense so, with what he was saying as well. Yeah, rather than leading you. Yeah, yeah. and then it's saying like deliver us from evil because he is like trying to save you. So that's another question I have about like literal, like literal versus allegorical. Like there is, I feel like in the Catholic Church, there is so much talk about Satan, like is Satan, do you believe in Satan like a physical character like Voldemort? Like, do you think it's like an actual being? Or do you think it's like an idea? Of, like all the bad things are, do you really think that there's like a, well, I guess you believe that there's an actual hell, right? Like that the hell is a physical place? Well, I don't know if like, I don't know if place, but like I, it is something that exists as far as like, I don't know if it's a place location, but it's something that exists. Just like the eternal eternal separation from God. But as far as, so like your first part of the question, Voldemort is Harry Potter, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> oh my God. I haven't read I, like, I, I think that from now on, we're going to have assignments for you that are like, please get in the 21st <laughs> century. 
so I did read the first Harry Potter, but it's been so long ago that I don't really remember Voldemort. So, but anyway, but, did your girl read it? Uh, Cecilia's read almost all of them, but anyway, so I can't like make that connection. But the devil is a fallen angel, so he's the bad guy. He's he who shall not be named. So originally, the devil was an angel, but then when they had to choose, he did not choose God. And so then he was a fallen angel. Angels, we know, are pure spirits. And so he would be a spirit. So it is like a specific, there is a devil. And then there's the other fallen angels that would also be striving and like working alongside him to try to. So, and that's kind of where it go when he talked about temptations come from the world, the flesh, or the devils. Not every sin or every temptation would necessarily be like the devil, but, but there's the temptations of the world, just like culture kind of what's valued. There's temptations of the flesh or our own desires. And then there can be things where it's the devil tempting us. Okay. So your question, your question, sir, is like, is there heaven and hell and is there a devil? Well, I just like, I I just struggle with like, like, I just kind of feel like when you die, you die. And I guess that's like a big thing that I struggle with is that like, are we talking like so much of it feels just like a really big, fancy mass fairy tale or myth. Like I feel like so many cultures are built on I love mythology and I like all of that stuff, but I like it as like an idea to help us understand what we don't have an explanation for. But I don't know if that's enough to like make me be a Catholic. That's where like I love all of this stuff, like the idea of trying to make sure that you are really good in this life so that there's more goodness in your heart than there is badness. The idea that there will be things that tempt you that are making you not as good of a person, but I don't, I understand it all as like, mythology if that makes sense but as far as like an actual heaven and hell yeah that's so i think this connects back to reconsidering everything or all things reconsidered what was the book called title yeah all things reconsidered reconsidered. i think it links back to that as far as you have to come to a point where you not only understand what your beliefs are but you understand why you believe what you do and so yeah i think over time like that's a long process to unpack and discover and to understand all the different factors that are at play with your beliefs. Like for me, I know that why I believe that there's connections to the Eucharist, there's connection to the lives of the saints, there's connections to science. So like thinking about Eucharistic miracles, thinking about like some saints' bodies who are, um, who haven't like, what's it called? I think they're called incorrupt. Just like that their bodies have been preserved over time when scientifically that shouldn't happen. Um, Like what? Like mummies? Well, kind of like if you, so one example that comes to mind is St. Francis Xavier. Um, So like that could be one that you could look at, but there's also been Eucharistic miracles where like if, uh, um, I think this one was from in Argentina, but it was somewhere in South America that like if a host falls to the ground, then they're supposed to put it in water, just so that it will naturally dissolve. And so like the priest did, but then rather than it dissolving, it formed like this tissue and then it just never dissolved. And so it was just in the tabernacle for a long time. And after a while, they eventually took a piece of it and they had scientists, um, <laughs> they had scientists like examine it, but it was scientists who didn't know where this particle came from. And so they were able to say like, this is heart tissue that's living, that, you know, like was like living heart tissue. <laughs> disgusting. The Middle Eastern man from the time of Jesus, like all these different factors to say. And like the scientists didn't know it was like a scientist in the United States. And then that scientist, if I remember right, converted based on like when he realized, but there's been multiple scenarios like that where like people end up in it. And I'm not kidding. Like there's 
multiple Eucharistic miracles. I mean, okay, so pause for a second. I hear yeah, stories like, like this. I look at you and I'm like, ghost hunters. I just look at you and I'm like, you are such a smart person. Like, what in the what are you house? talking about? <laughs> That's right. So, like, a wafer is all of a sudden the heart DNA of Jesus Christ? Because, well, so like, the Eucharist is the true presence, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, but we still experience it under the accidents of bread because we talk about transubstantiation that it changes but it still looks and tastes like a wafer but we believe that it is jesus body blood soul and divinity so sometimes there's those eucharistic miracles that then connect to yeah it really is what jesus said it was in the gospels also like i don't know if you guys remember father joyce that was mom's That that was in poland not south america there's been multiple so there was one in argentina too um but if so, Father Joyce. Are you googling? Yeah, she's googling. <laughs> what are you googling? She's thinking I'm crazy, so she's starting to Google. But Sarah, don't you remember when we were in like middle school, high school? Father Joyce, who was mom's priest when she was in Catholic school, growing up, there was a girl where he lived who had fallen into her pool, and but she didn't like completely die, so she was still alive but not able to like she was in her bed in a coma, and then there like certain things and this isn't one that's verified by the church so there's certain miracles that the church has verified and others that are not but like he would pray mass and some of the times when he would elevate the host it would bleed so there's different what? yeah there's different scenarios like that where like a priest is just saying the mass and then all of a sudden the host starts to bleed um which i mean i've never experienced that obviously but so there's different eucharistic miracles over time that also like point towards that. Um, or there's like scenarios of when people are being martyred, that different ways that people try to kill them, that there's no way that they, that it would make sense that they would not die, but then they don't yet. Like St. Lucy, if I remember right, I think St. Lucy, like that there are multiple things. Is that, your, is that who Lucy's named after? Yeah. Um, Sarah's Googling. I can see her eyes moving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you might have a, I had a no hard no. She's crazy. <laughs> so I mean that just doesn't seem. So oh, Sarah, no, she's bringing Father, a book. So Sarah, Father Josh Johnson, that you I gave you his cool book Broken and Blessed. But then you also saw him on the I Follow video. So he has yeah. this little pocket guide to adoration, and in each section, like at the end, he has different like Eucharistic miracles. So they have just like things. So like. They're just like brief, short stories. Like this one's from India in 2001, or there's like the Argentina one is in here somewhere. I'm not reading Father, those. Father Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> so like there's one in Mexico. And so like this is a fairly recent one from 2006. Would have just, so the, and this is a similar thing. So this is from St. Martin of Tours Parish in Mexico. And in 2006, a Eucharistic host was found bleeding as it was about to be given in Holy Communion under the bishop's direction. Scientists investigated thoroughly and confirmed the presence of blood type AB that contained human hemoglobin and DNA. This blood type matches the blood found in other Eucharistic miracles, as well as the Shroud of Turin. Forensic experts stated that the blood was not applied to the host, but was instead seeping from within the host. In fact, more, more study several years again after the initial discovery revealed that beneath the coagulated blood, the host continued to bleed. 
the blood was seeping from human tissue, heart muscle called myocardium. With both red and white blood cells, this meant the tissue was living. So there's no. (laughs) Sure. I'm sorry, no. (laughs) And I'm not Catholic. (laughs) Join us next week when we talk about Congratulations, Amanda. You just deconverted us. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So they're like, there's other ones that explain it more in full, just like as far as the, so like the Argentinian ones here. It what? It. That is crazy. There's not blood in bread. But that's where like, if you, it's so like if you read how the doctor, a secular doctor wouldn't have believed it either. And, but he studied it, not knowing what it was and saying like, it's this, this, and this, and like different Sorry, times. Different times. It's not crazy. Yeah. Don't you think DNA but, could be on the host though? Like I don't, like, I don't think it's necessarily like on just a regular consecrated host, but it's like when there's specific Eucharistic miracles, then they have discovered it. I mean, that's the whole point of miracles, right? Like something that shouldn't be true and is. <laughs> if the listeners could see us now, I'm like Edvard Monks, the scream. This is the same woman who was like, David Crush is sympathetic. (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy now. No, I said that the documentary of him made him a sympathetic character. I mean, because it's Tim Riggins. Yeah, because it was Tim Riggins. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm like, who's Tim Riggins? (laughs) If you say who's Tim Riggins, I'm out. Wasn't your Friday Friday Night Lights that you were obsessed with for a while? 33 yeah, on the field, number one in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever watch Friday Night Lights, Mandy? Don't ask. A long time. You I just think have your heart broken. For, in, my, in my doctorate program, it was one of the books that we could choose to read. And I, oh, I probably, yeah. Might have been like That's our not the same. I think it was for my qualitative the research. The book is good. The book is good. Yeah, so I didn't the show. because I was, you know, reading it. Celeste needs to say you would love the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's like, no. <laughs> we should give her a pop culture assignment every week. I know. So I'm we saying. have to learn about Eucharistic miracles. She needs to learn about Tim Riggins. But I think that, okay. like, so, I mean, if you do look into different, like, scenarios that have happened with saints, different things all throughout different periods of time. And if you do look at, from the scientific side, like, people independent of the church, and the conclusions that they've arrived at based on the evidence that's there, then I think that's one of the things that's helpful. But you'd have to like really look to see what is the evidence that's there and what do people say. Like I said, there's independent doctors who did not know where it came from. They were just analyzing what is this as a scientist. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely... Okay. Like on that note... (laughs) So (laughs) where do we go? I feel as a whole, this week's assignment was helpful, though, for me. Just give me, I'm trying to tie this up. What are we going to talk about next week? We got off on that discussion because Sarah was wondering about, is the devil real? Is, Is God even real? Is there heaven and hell? Like, is any of this real? So then I started talking about... <laughs> you talking about bleeding hosts. <laughs> I started talking about that how... how you like, you want to know if it's real? Let me tell you. Bread, heart tissue, Middle Eastern man, <laughs> boom. <laughs> Independent doctor verified, closed book. 
But I guess with trying to wrap it up, I think that I went into this week thinking that it was not going to be as inspiring and I'm left with a new appreciation for the prayer that I honestly just said on idle pilot every Sunday in mass, you know, without really thinking about it. I think that it can be an entry into me having those still moments and going into the room and shutting the door and having that moment to pray. If you're only going to have like one prayer in the whole world, like the Our Father yeah. would be the one that like leads you and what you're striving for. So what's next? I, well, I think that Vibrant we... Paradoxes book, so I'd be happy to read that. I have it. Have you read that, Mandy? I haven't, but yeah, I would like that one. I think that would be a good one just as a, just the overarching theme of both and. For next week... We're going to read the book Vibrant Paradoxes, The Both and of Catholicism by Robert Barron. Thank you for listening.